This is WQA Radio, a podcast from the Water Quality Association, the leading voice of the water treatment industry. Three, two, one. And hello, I'm your host, Wes Bleed. 15 parts per billion should not be what we're shooting for in schools. And frankly, the best way to get below that is with things like point of use filters and bottle fillers. That's Dr. David Swartney from the University of Iowa talking about testing for lead in drinking water in schools and daycares. And welcome to WQA Radio, where we bring you news and insights about the water treatment industry and promote better water quality. This is episode number 260, and this podcast is sponsored by Primo Water, America's favorite water and filtration solutions provider, making it easier to enjoy quality water at home, at work, and on the go. Learn more at water.com. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Be sure to hit that subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss a show. That's the magic of podcasting. And please leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate it. We're publishing this on March 30th of 2022. You can find out more about WQA at our website, wqa.org, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And plan to join us for the WQA Convention and Exposition in Orlando, April 6th through the 8th. Learn more at wqa.org slash convention. In this episode of WQA Radio, we will hear from David Swartney, PhD and professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Iowa. Dr. Swartney spoke during a recent WQA Essentials webinar, which looked at the risks to schools and child care centers posed by lead in drinking water. Dr. Swartney focused on recent revisions to the lead in copper rule, which will mandate testing in schools and child care centers starting in 2024. You'll learn why these changes present new opportunities for point-of-use water treatment solutions. We'll feature excerpts from the webinar. Later, we'll have our WQA tip. Now on to segments from the recent WQA Essentials webinar on testing for lead in schools and daycares with Dr. David Swartney on WQA Radio. And our presenter today is Dr. David Swartney, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Iowa. And he's going to be discussing the recent revisions to the lead and copper rule which will mandate testing for lead in drinking water in schools and childcare centers starting in 2024. And so I'll, I'll just come out and say that I think first and foremost, uh, drinking water tends to be this overlooked uh, source of lead exposure, even though evidence shows that it that can be quite important. So lead's a potent neurotoxin that's harmful to human health. Children themselves are particularly vulnerable. Their developing brain, uh, their, their nervous systems are actually quite more susceptible to harmful effects from lead uh, due to their more rapid metabolism. They're actually more prone to having lead accumulation in their body. So they tend to be the population that's most at risk. So definitely, again, an issue relevant for schools and child cares. 
The American um, Academy of Pediatrics has come out and the CDC has supported this statement that there really is no safe uh, blood lead level for children. So effectively, any amount of lead exposure is a bad level of lead exposure for children. So it's something that we would need to be quite aggressive in trying to make sure that we avoid and remove those exposure points for our children. Um, EPA estimates that drinking water can make up to 20% or more of a person's total exposure to lead. So again, I think that is, it kind of makes the case that it's an important, but we often overlook it relative to traditional sources like paint and soil. And it's particularly an issue then for bottle-fed infants. So if infants are drinking bottle-fed uh, formula, um, that can be 40 to 60% of their lead exposure just coming from that drinking water that's used to make the formula. So lead and copper rule as revised will only require sampling for five. Even the rule says that this should not be the end and that schools should do more testing. There was a recent study and I wanna point, I wanna use the data. This is a, a paper that was written based off of Massachusetts school testing program. And somewhat surprisingly, they conclude that this five samples is probably good enough to capture risk in schools. But I think I wanna walk you through their data and one, inform you a little bit about what to expect in schools. And then two, use the data to show where it's not necessarily the right way we're doing it here with these required testing through the LCR. So first and foremost, this is the summary of the Massachusetts DEP data. Um, and you know, make, not to overwhelm, let's just look at the public school line. They had a thousand buildings which with, with that they tested, which they thought was 83% uh, of the schools they tested. Those 1,000 buildings counted for almost 50,000 fixtures. So that's pretty easy math. That's on average about 47 fixtures per school, of which you're going to test five. And then they have some of the summary aggregates of their 90th percentile lead sample. So even here, this sort of illustrates the scope and scale of the issue. 1,000 buildings, each with 40 fixtures, 40 to 50. And the EPA is requiring that we just test five of those. And not only five, a very prescriptive five. So let's talk about that prescriptive five. It says that they, and this is again, now looking at the results aggregated from Massachusetts, of first draw and flushed samples. And so when we test for lead, we usually collect what's called the first draw sample, which is after the water is stagnated for like an eight hour period. And then we run the water for a minute and we catch that flush sample. The first draw is supposed to be an indicator of lead really like concentrated at the point of use. That flush is supposed to give you an insight of lead that could be deeper into the building's plumbing. The lead and copper rule requires that you test two water fountains, one classroom faucet, one kitchen faucet, and one nurse's office faucet. There is your five in a school. And if you do that, you're going to catch a lot of where there are lead issues. We've been in schools and I'll show you some of our floor plans where every classroom has a faucet. But to sort of point out one shortcoming in this, we only test five, Look here, what Massachusetts found was that kitchen kettles end up being an important source of lead used in the kitchen for cooking, for prepping of things like rice. They tested 520 of these. The 90th percentile value for lead was almost 130 micrograms per liter. 35% of all kitchen kettle samples were above the 15 parts per billion non-health-based gu guideline. How can a testing program catch all of the risks for lead in schools if probably the highest risk uh, location for lead is ignored in the sampling protocol? That is, I think, an issue.
an awareness that I think we need to start sharing with schools so they don't just take their five results and think we're good. I, you know, I've hammered this point. There's no health-based guideline. I think this is very critical for this audience to be able to communicate. 15 parts per billion should not be what we're shooting for in schools. And frankly, the best way to get below that is with things like point of use filters and bottle fillers. I would just start with to kind of go back to your point just about timing right now. The time is now the funding is either available or becoming available. But yet that that date that lies ahead of us, that 2024 date. Could you talk a little bit more about that in terms of uh, whether schools are going to be motivated to test now or to wait? And, and as a result of that, how quickly would our members want to start reaching out to school officials and uh, facilities administrators? Yeah, that's a great question, Wes. Um, so I would say a couple of things. Um, you know, the, the, I, I don't think it's too early to start trying to engage in a dialogue about this issue. Um, first, there is this the, the influx of funding that has come. And I, and, I, and, and I think that is a great resource as communities think about where they should be spending it. And I know I've talked to many communities with the Recovery Act money that say, we don't actually wanna deal with lead service lines because that's more of like a five to 10 year issue for us, but we do wanna tackle the lead and water issues. What can we do? And I think thinking about schools first, where it's a much more confined and discrete issue. So that's the reason for acting quickly. The other reason for acting quickly is that water systems now know they're on notice. The water systems are in charge of coordinating this testing, compiling the lists of daycare providers, compiling the lists of schools in their service area. I think they all see it as a headache. They're all very worried about what they do when schools come back to them with bad results. Um, so I, I, I had it on that last slide. I think now is a great time to be trying to build relationships with community water systems and say, as you do this, and as people have needs, please let us know how we can help. Let them know that we're here. The other point about you know, these facilities folks, they have preferred vendors they work with. They like to work with the local guy in town or they like to work with um, you know, this one online site. You all should be trying to think about how you can build some relationships there so they think of you as well when the time comes. And, and there, you know, I'll leave it up to you all to decide the way to make yourself competitive in that space. But that is, they usually look, you know, the folks at NSF didn't like us telling them this because they want there to be some grand deep motivation for this, but these facility folks want the most treatment for the less money. <laughs> and so it really was, that was a big takeaway from us. So yeah, I would, I would by 2024, that's when they have to start doing the testing, but they're already, the wheels are in motion to get it figured out and most are dreading it. So I think that if you come in offering the ability to say, we can be here to help when there's problems, that might be well-received in a few, a few places. I like the point you made about not every point of uh, water distribution in a school has to be drinkable. Uh, you know, it could be used for other things such as maybe just hand washing, but not necessarily drinking. And I think with with that in mind, it becomes a more fixable problem. You know, you exactly. And that's why I've, I've taken to that so through experience, that language is, you know, I went into that one school that had 140 outlets and it was like, this is madness. Like, I understand the convenience, you know, and then there can be, you know, a priority scale. Like when you're when you have a kindergarten classroom with four or five year olds, you know, maybe that's a little bit harder to orchestrate them as ducks down to the, the water bottle filler. But 
we we can be better. We have this the, the the problem of the scale is that it costs a lot of money to test a lot of places, and it's going to cost a lot of money to treat a lot of places. So the only easy solution to me is well, let's just minimize both of those and really ensure good quality. I think it's going to meet a little bit of resistance because the culture of convenience that's in schools. But I think we have to ha start having that conversation. And I think there are arguments to be made about the one part per billion and that filters are certified to deliver that, that schools can hear and schools can say, well, I get it now. And that makes sense. And that's why something like filter first legislatively might even sort of mandate that process. And again, I think if those sorts of if states start passing that legislation, you all will want to be there to be able to say yes. And here's why that makes sense. I like the point you made about not every point of uh, water distribution in a school has to be drinkable. Uh, you know, it could be used for other things such as maybe just hand washing, but not necessarily drinking. And I think with with that in mind, it becomes a more fixable problem. You know, you exactly. And that's why I've, I've taken to that through experience, that language is, you know, I went into that one school that had 140 outlets and it was like, this is madness. Like, I understand the convenience, you know, and then there can be, you know, a priority scale. Like when you're when you have a kindergarten classroom with four or five year olds, you know, maybe that's a little bit harder to orchestrate them as ducks down to the, the water bottle filler. But we, we can be better. We have this. The, the, the problem of the scale is that it costs a lot of money to test a lot of places and it's going to cost a lot of money to treat a lot of places. So the only easy solution to me is, well, let's just minimize both of those and really ensure good quality. Anything further? We've got maybe a minute or two left, um, Dr. Swartney, that you'd want to impress upon our group, either in oh. terms of how to reach out to those community systems or how to prioritize what the information is that they present when they do reach out. Yeah, I mean, I think tailor your message to the person you, you talk to. And so I do think that, like I mentioned in my slides, the two important people are the facilities folks and speak to them on what they care about, thinking about ease of maintenance, think about you know certainty of the product that's being delivered, the lifetime, the cost. The superintendent, who ultimately has the responsibility of the health of every child in the school, be comfortable with the argument about why 15 parts per billion is not good enough. We need to start pushing back on this narrative that we can serve our water, our children, 14 parts per billion lead. That one part per billion, what pediatricians advocate, that water lead can impact blood lead levels. There's no safe level. Those are your best selling points to the superintendent to get them to want to do something more than just the bare minimum and say like, well, I'll just turn that faucet off. That's not what we should be doing, right? We should not be allowing. So, so make that public health argument for why things like filters are good because they get us as low as possible. Our WQA tip, how can you position your company for growth and impact in the year ahead? By attending the WQA convention and exposition in Orlando, coming up soon, April 6th through the 8th. Learn from our top education sessions. See the latest products on the trade show floor and network with friends and colleagues in the water treatment industry. But you gotta be there, and time is running out. Learn more and register at wqa.org convention.
Thanks for listening to WQA Radio, a podcast of the Water Quality Association, the leading voice of the water treatment industry. This podcast was sponsored by Primo Water, America's favorite water and filtration solutions provider, making it easier to enjoy quality water at home, at work, and on the go. Learn more at water.com. Subscribe to WQA Radio on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or most popular podcast apps. Learn about water at wqa.org. Also learn about WQA product certification, professional certification, and how you can become a member at wqa.org. This is Wes Bleed. So long from WQA Radio.